Um, so this afternoon we begin a, a brand new uh, sermon series, uh, which we're going to be in uh, through the month of October. Um, then in November we're back in our series in the church, and then December's Advent. Um, so our series in October is titled Honest Faith. Uh, so we're looking at the book of Habakkuk. Um, one of many who've been described as a, a minor Old Testament uh, prophet. Um, and minor not in the sense that we're less important, but minor in terms of quantity of verses and, and passages. Um, so Habakkuk is a lot smaller than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, and so this afternoon we begin this series uh, and we do so with me not really knowing how much you know about the book of Habakkuk. Um, there's no doubt in my mind as we come to this book, we could spend an extraordinary amount of time looking at the background uh, around this book and why it is this prophet wrote what he wrote. Uh, and the danger is we end up knowing a lot about Habakkuk and not really getting to the heart of, of why Habakkuk uh, wrote and, and prayed uh, in a particular way. Uh, so what we're going to do as we begin uh, is just, I just want to give you three, what I'm going to call foundational bricks uh, for this book in light of a series over the next five weeks. Uh, and this afternoon, I want you to think of these these three bricks, these three building blocks um, as a foundation to, to all that we're going to spend time looking at. So just have this in mind as we think about um, all that we're going to look at over the next five weeks. So I'm on right now, and then Andrew's on next week, then I'm back on week four, Andrew's on, and then I'm doing the final week. Um, so five Sundays in total. So let's examine the first of these kind of foundational bricks for us as we think about Habakkuk. Uh, the first thing I'd want to say to you is that Habakkuk was most likely written during the rule of King Jehoiakim. And I recognise this afternoon that probably means nothing to you. Um, it might actually mean something to you if, if you know your Old Testament well. But we need to know historically what was going on in Habakkuk's day that then caused him to write what he wrote at that particular point in history. And Habakkuk was most likely living as a resident of Jerusalem. And in verse 6 of our passage, we get a clue as to when he was alive. So God says this to Habakkuk, he says, Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. And God here is speaking about the Babylonians. The Chaldeans is just another name for the Babylonians and the Babylonian Empire. And what we see here is that they had gained a reputation for violence and brutality, but they had not yet seized Jerusalem and exiled God's people. So that leaves us with a narrow window as to when it was this book was written. And most likely this would have been around the 7th century, uh, which was a time of great upheaval uh, for God's people. Um, so what was going on in the time of Habakkuk? If this is what Habakkuk writes in verse 6, or if this is what God says to Habakkuk in verse 6, what was going on that caused Habakkuk to pray what he prays, which is what we're going to look at in a minute. Well, at this point in Judah's history, uh, King Josiah had already pulled down the pagan altars and restored the temple. King Josiah's desire was that the people of God would truly repent and worship him. But King Josiah was gone, and it was now King Je Jehoiakim's reign. And he was actually reversing all of the good work of Josiah. And what we see from King Jehoiakim was a kingship and consequently a people who were characterized by greed, by exploitation, by violence, by injustice, by moral confusion, and a complete refusal to repent. Uh, and so it's in this particular context, with this historical background, that Habakkuk says what he says to God. Uh, and he does not understand why all of this is happening. Habakkuk is confused. 
he's angry, he's upset, and he questions not only the sin and suffering he sees, but he also questions why God is not intervening. And that's really important for us to understand. He's asking why as he looks around, but he's also looking up and saying, God, why? Why are you not stepping in? Why are you not changing this situation? Uh, when you read the book of Habakkuk, what you discover is an honest faith, which is our title for this series. And I don't think we could ever say that this prophet ever rejected God or doubted God's goodness, but he does wholeheartedly ask why, God, why? And this brings us on to the second building block that we need to lay down this afternoon. So number one, um, Habakkuk was written probably around the time of King Jehoiakim. And number two, Habakkuk is a blend of different genres. And that's going to de determine how we read it. Uh, one commentator described the book of Habakkuk as a, a bit of a menagerie. Um, does, does anyone know what a menagerie is? Yeah, Karen, no one else. I explained it this morning. So, um, Back in the day, 18th century, 19th century, early 20th century, there was wealthy people who would go and visit menageries. Um, and they were basically places normally indoors, sometimes they were outdoors, where you would see a wide variety of exotic animals. It was kind of like a posh version of a zoo. Um, and one of the key features of a menagerie were how different the animals were. So you could have a peacock in one cage, a tiger in another cage, an elephant in another cage, maybe an anteater in another cage. And Habakkuk is a bit like that with all the different genres. It's a collection of different types of writing all in the one book. Um, so the first thing we would want to say this afternoon is that Habakkuk is a prophetic book. Um, it's a prophetic word from an Old Testament prophet. That should be our first point of call as we think about understanding this book. But alongside the prophetic, there's also elements of wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom literature being how we understand life. Uh, and we find this throughout scripture. There's moments in, in God's word, old and new, where we have a better understanding of what life is all about and why God has made us through the practical application of God's word. Um, so we see this in Habakkuk, Habakkuk as well. He, he basically provides us with not only big questions about life, but something of how it is we should respond in the midst of these big questions. And thirdly, Habakkuk is also a lamentation. So he's expressing deep grief and sorrow at the spiritual state of his people. And he's also expressing deep grief and sorrow, sorrow at the fact that God is not acting in the way that he hoped he would act, which is so important. And finally, this book characterizes something of a psalm as well. If you look at the Psalms and you look at the book of Habakkuk, you will see similarities at different points. Particularly the, the third chapter of this book is a heartfelt word from a wholehearted prophet. So four ways we can understand Habakkuk. Prophecy, wisdom, lamentation, and psalm. Uh, so as we look at this book, and as we have these, these genres in mind, there's going to be moments where he is speaking prophetically, moments of wisdom that we can apply to our lives, moments where he is lamenting, and moments that are similar to the Psalms. So I want us just to be aware of, of what it is that God is doing through this prophet and how we can then benefit from these different genres as we understand what it is he says and how this relates to our lives. All that to say, I'm really looking forward to this book. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing what God might do in our lives as we walk through this book together. And my prayer is that God would use this book in a way that changes our hearts and minds for the better. 
And it's not that we in any way would, would mould and shape what Habakkuk says, and that's always a danger when it comes to God, God's word. We, we isolate, we look at God's word and say, based on my own experience, this is what God's word says. But rather, we would allow the word of God to be authoritative in our lives, and we would be moulded by God's word. We would be moulded by what Habakkuk says. That brings us on to the final brick I want us to lay down as we think about this book. Number three, uh, the two main themes of Habakkuk are suffering and the sovereignty of God. So suffering, that's obvious to us. We all experience suffering. I get a yes and amen. Uh, what we go through, what we experience when life is tough, whether it's our internal or external circumstances, when life seems at times utterly impossible or difficult, suffering. Secondly, the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is working out all things according to his perfect plan and purpose. And suffering and sovereignty go together and that no matter what it is we see going on all around us, our call in that moment of suffering and in that moment of recognizing God as sovereign, our call, the connection point is trust. We trust God. As we suffer and as we recognize that God is sovereign, he calls us to trust him. And that's difficult, but it's also a work of God in our lives. All of which makes the book of Habakkuk very relevant to us because even though we're not living 600 or 700 years before the birth of Christ, all of us can relate to Habakkuk's experience of suffering. We can all identify with suffering. We all suffer. We're all broken people. We all go through difficult times. At times we are left at a loss as to what is going on, what is happening. And we all face the regular challenge that God, in spite of what we see all around us, God is, is on his throne. God is sovereign. And in his perfect plan and purpose for this world, God's will will always prevail. And we have to hold on to that in the midst of the confusion of our suffering. So the challenge of Habakkuk is a challenge of Mark Morris. It's a challenge for every single one of us today. Um, so with that as our foundation this afternoon, let's read Habakkuk's first prayer and how God responds to this prayer. And I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And the words are going to be up on the screen. So Habakkuk says this. He says, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, so this is his prayer. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And then God's response is from verse 5 onwards. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days, but you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they will sweep like the wind and pass through. They are guilty 
their strength as we are God. So, Father, we, we ask that, that you take this word and that you use it, and that you work in us, that you help us to have a biblical understanding for suffering, and you help us through this difficult passage to, to draw nearer to you. And Lord, I thank you that your promise is that through your word and in your spirit, we will experience your grace. We will experience your fellowship as we recognize that our lives are difficult and as we make a conscious decision to rest and trust in your sovereignty. So bless us, Lord, as we look at your word. Help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this afternoon, um, or this past week, rather, you may have seen in the news uh, the, the Sycamore Gap tree, uh, which was beside Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland. Uh, you might have seen what happened to that. Anyone see that? Yeah. Um, this is one of the most photographed trees in the UK, one of the most iconic locations in Northern England. It's in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, if anyone's seen that. Um, someone this week decided to chop it down. Um, I don't think we know who it was. I think there's been a couple of people arrested. We don't know what their motive was. Uh, what we do know is, as a result of this, this tree being chopped down, there was a wave of anger and sorrow at this act of vandalism. And just as I was hearing about what happened and reflecting on the fact this tree was chopped down, it, it really highlighted to me just how much we treasure and value beauty, and in particular, the beauty of our natural world. And whether people were aware of this or not, because there are many, many non-believers who are outraged at what had happened, the many who loved this tree did so in reality because God has set eternity in their heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Through the created world, we catch a glimpse of the Creator, and we catch a glimpse of the promise of eternity for all for everyone who loves him and who's called according to his purpose. And so even if we're aware of this or not, when a window into God's majesty and glory is taken from us like this moment, we feel robbed, we experience sorrow, we might even be angry. And so I think that's something of what was happening in our culture this past week. And this is something of what's going on in the life of Habakkuk as well. Habakkuk witnessed the way in which God had used Josiah to restore the people of God back towards our God-given purpose. And in many regards, that was like the, the growth of a beautiful tree. He caught a glimpse of God's will, God's way, and God's wonder as the people of God lived according to the word of God. And here they were, now under the rule and reign of Jehoiakim. And it's like this king, this new guy, he chopped the good work that, that Josiah had done he chopped it down. He did everything he possibly could to reverse Josiah's policies. And Habakkuk did not only see the depravity and destruction that flowed out of the sinful leadership of this new king, he was also at a loss. He was, he was trying to comprehend where God was in the midst of that. So yes, it's one thing to see this depravity, but it's another thing then to look to God and say, God, why are you not stepping in and doing something about this? Verse 2, have a look at what Habakkuk says. He says, how long, Lord? So he's, he's praying to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help? As I look at all that's happening around me, how long must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence. That's the violence of his people. It's not the violence of the Chaldeans. It's the violence of Judah. And you do not save. 
Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. So Habakkuk is honest. He's brutally honest before God. And I wonder if that's, that's us this afternoon. Do we pray that kind of prayer? Do we say, how long, Lord? I'm going through this, this rut, this difficult moment. I don't understand what's happening. How long, Lord, must I call to you? And then Habakkuk, from anger in his heart, it seems to, to be his heart's almost bleeding. He says, why do you force me to look at this injustice? Habakkuk is, is looking down on this spiritual state of Jerusalem and Judah. And it's like he's looking at a felled tree. What once was beautiful and glorious has been chopped down. It's no longer there. And not only does he, does he feel the loss of that, like these many people have felt the loss of this tree, he's also angry. Why is this happening in the first place? Why is God not doing anything to change this situation? I do not get it. This is Habakkuk's heart. And Habakkuk feels like this because he realizes that it's God or bust. There's, there's nothing within Habakkuk. There's nothing within the righteous people of Judah. There's nothing within any aspect of Judean culture that could change this situation. It is God or bust. He has to step in and change. All of which is confirmed by what it is that Habakkuk shares in verse 4. He says this. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Justice never emerges. The law is ineffective, Habakkuk says. And what a reminder for each one of us of the ineffectiveness, the limited capacity of human beings. It's God or bust for us as well. We, we can't change our society. It has to be God at work in and throughs. And we can't help but see echoes of David in Psalm 16, verses 11 to 12. David says this, Give us aid against the foe, for human help is worthless. With God we will perform valiantly. He will trample our foes. But that second line there, human help is worthless. That's the reality. You know, we could do lots of good things for a society, but unless we are relying upon the power of God, it's worthless, it's pointless, it's useless. So what is happening here? What is taking place in the heart of Habakkuk? Well, in essence, Habakkuk, if I was to summarize this in one line, Habakkuk is attempting to understand the nature and activity or inactivity of God in the face of hardship and suffering. Let me say that again. Habakkuk is attempting to understand the nature and activity or inactivity of God in the face of hardship and suffering. And the theological term for this is theodicy. And the starting point for theodicy is a struggle. We, we kind of begin with a recognition that this is hard. This is difficult. We struggle within our hearts to understand why certain things happen. And I think God's okay with that. It's okay to struggle. Sometimes we think, if I, if I struggle with what I see, then that's unbelief and therefore that is sin. But as we see with Habakkuk, it's okay. God is big enough to deal with Habakkuk's complaint. And as we think about theodicy, it's also the questions that arise from our hearts. 
as to whether or not God is actually there in the first place. And that can be something that, that we can find stirring up within us. And why is it God is not working in a particular situation of suffering? How many times have you heard this? Uh, if God is a loving God, then how could he allow dot, dot, dot to happen? Many of us can think of conversations we've had, believer or non-believer, where people have said that. If God is a loving God, then how could he allow this or that or this to happen? So maybe that's us. Maybe we've asked that question in our own lives. If God is God, then why did he permit this in my own life or in that person that I love's lives? How do we answer that question ourselves? How do we help someone as we wrestle with that question and other questions like it? The novelist uh, Peter de Vries describes this question. You know, if God is God, then why did this happen? He describes that question and questions similar to it as like a, a question mark twisted like a fish hook in the human heart. Can you imagine that image? of a question mark being like a fish hook in the human heart. That is, we, we feel the pain. It's not just intellectual, it's emotional. We feel the pain. We experience the pain. We ask the question, why? And we do so because we struggle to see any way forward. Things are not making sense to us. God is not making sense to us. We ask why, and we even feel the pain in asking that why question. And it's easy for any one of us to then fire out Romans 8, 28, like, I don't know, a t-shirt gun or something. You know, people often say that. If someone's suffering and they ask the question, why? Often the, the response is Romans 8, 28. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Is that verse true? Absolutely, it's true. God works all things. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That is true. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, it's my fortress. In other words, it's, it's a foundation. It was foundational for Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is someone who went through a lot of suffering. And in many ways, what we see at the end of Habakkuk, at the end of his book, so week five, what we see at the end of this book, as a reflection of what it is we read in Romans 8.28. So yes, Romans 8.28 is precious and valuable for all of God's people, and particularly in their moments of suffering. But if, if pastorally you are connecting with someone and they're going through the most difficult of seasons, if you know someone who's experiencing suffering that you could never imagine, you could never contemplate, and you turn up and you say, well, you know, Romans 8.28... We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. How is that going to go down for them when you say that? And especially if they're not a believer, because this verse only applies to believers. It's those who are called according to his purpose. How is that going to go down for you as well? When it comes to your immediate response to them, is this the most loving thing you can say? And often it's not just what we say, it's how we say it and why we say it. So yes, absolutely, Romans 8.28 is true. And we want them to get to a, to a place where they recognize the power and the beauty of Romans 8.28. But like Paul, like Habakkuk, there was a journey to be taken first before they arrived there. And notice in our passage, Habakkuk did not reject God. He did not sin against God. 
Habakkuk was, was honest. In the midst of his inexplicable pain, Habakkuk, Habakkuk was brutally honest about what it is he was facing, what it is he was going through. And we know this because God does not rebuke Habakkuk as he responds to the precise words of what he says. So in verses 5 to 11 of our passage, there's no rebuking from God to Habakkuk. But we also know this because Habakkuk speaks of God as as Yahweh. And we see this in our Bibles as capital L-O-R-D. And it speaks to the fact that the God he worships was and is a covenant God. And he would never leave or forsake Habakkuk or Habakkuk's people. So Habakkuk still believed this. Habakkuk still held on to this. Habakkuk asked God, how long? Habakkuk asked God, why? But he does so recognizing that this God is for him. So he's honest. He's open before God. And he's finding it really, really difficult. He can't comprehend fully the suffering that he experiences but he has not rejected God he has not sinned against God and what we discover in verses 5 to 11 is then the response from Yahweh to Habakkuk and what we see God doing here is God providing Habakkuk with an answer to his question of how long and eventually Habakkuk will discover the answer to the why question as well and he may not have the answer that he was looking for but he will have the answer that God has for him and let me just say this afternoon, God's answer is always, always, always enough. Might not be the answer we hope for, but it's the answer that he gives to us and his answer is always enough. And we will understand that either in this side of eternity or in the other side. So in verses five to six, we discover what it is that God is going to do in response to the obvious injustice and violence that exists amongst these people. So we read this in verse five. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days, but you will not believe. When you hear about it, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. Now, as we said already, the Chaldeans was another name for the Babylonians, which we understand as a Babylonian empire. And these people would eventually destroy Judah and Jerusalem in 586 BC. And in its destruction, they would send the people of God into exile. So the Babylonians were going to cause a lot of harm to God's people. And God commands four things of the people of God here in verses 5 to 6. And I want us just to look at these briefly. God says four things to his people in light of the fact this Babylonian empire are going to come. First of all, he tells them to look. He says, look. That is, they need to look beyond their own nation, beyond their own difficulties that are facing, and see what is happening in the world around them. So this is a call from Yahweh to Habakkuk to have a, a much fuller, more complete view of what he is doing in the world. So look. Secondly, God asks Habakkuk and his people to observe. And this is, this is not simply a repetition of look. It means to give sustained contemplation to something. For us today, this would be not only seeing what is going on in the world, but to see what is happening in our world and in our lives through a biblical lens and to do that for a prolonged period of time. This is what, this is what God is calling Habakkuk to do. And thirdly, God tells Habakkuk and his people to be utterly astounded. And it's quite a strange command, be astounded, because normally 
to be astounded. It's an emotional reaction. We, we respond in light of something that's going on in our hearts. So how does this happen? Well, clearly, it's a work of God's Spirit. We are so in awe of God and what he is doing that we see how small we are. We see how great God is. And it causes us to be astounded. It causes us to reverentially worship and praise him. And then finally, God tells Habakkuk, CSB translated as look. But again, it could be translated to be astounded. So we could actually read the last line there at the end of verse 5, at the beginning of verse 6, as astound yourselves and be astounded. So is God calling him here to look, to observe, to be astounded? Is he calling him to do this as they, as they fix their eyes upon the Babylonians? That's what God is doing. Is, is he wanting Habakkuk to be in awe at their brute force, their sheer power? Is this what God wants Habakkuk to do? To, to focus on the Babylonians? No. No, he wants Habakkuk and his people to look, to observe, to be astounded by the fact that God is at work through the Babylonians. God is at work in the midst of the Babylonians. And it's why Yahweh says to Habakkuk in verse 5, for I am doing something in your days. It's not the Babylonians that are doing something. It is me. I am doing something through these Babylonians. Not the, not, not the Babylonians in and of themselves. Now we can be confident that Habakkuk would have not understood this straight away. And nor would the people of God understand this straight away. They would have found it difficult to marry God using this brutal empire, this violent force to fulfill his plan and purpose. And we know that not only because of what we read in the, in the remainder of this book, but because of verses 7 through to 11. In the last section, we see a stark profile of what the Babylonians were like. So have a look at verse 7 onwards. We read, they were a fierce and terrifying force for views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. In other words, they're all about themselves. These Babylonians have no desire to look upward. They're looking inward. They think that they are amazing and they're using violence and force to glorify themselves. Verse 8, there are people who devour. So these are bad cats. These are not nice guys. Verse 9, all of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. And this is a prophecy of the Babylonian exile. This is what would happen to God's people. They would be gathered as prisoners like sand. Verse 10, they mock, they laugh, they capture. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. In other words, these guys idolize their strength. They idolize themselves. They do not worship Yahweh. They worship themselves. And they make a sacrifice of other nations as a means of worshiping themselves. And it's this group of people that God is going to use. This group of people became God's instrument in order that God's people might be refined and justice be done. So how are we to understand this? Is it really the case that God uses a brokenness and even the evil of this world in order that his plan might be fulfilled? Is this, God, is this how God works in our lives and in this world? Well, this afternoon I can't help 
I think of Joseph's words to his brothers. So many years after they had sold him into slavery in Egypt, we read this in Genesis 50, 20. Um, it'll be up on the screen for us. No. <laughs> it's just deleted from my iPad for some reason. But basically, from memory, uh, Joseph says this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God allowed this to come to pass in order that many lives might be saved. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the reality. So what the Babylonians meant for evil, God meant for good. God had a plan, a good plan and a good purpose through the evil intentions of the Babylonians. And John Calvin uh, says of this passage, give me two seconds, Fans just shut down, so it's up on the screen as well. Um, yeah, John Calvin says it is not by their own instinct, but by the hidden impulse of God. God can employ the vices of men in executing his judgments. The wicked are led here and there by the hidden power of God. And that's mysterious to us. I think we can all read that and think about what happened in Joseph's life, uh, what happened in Habakkuk, and even this morning we were thinking about the life of Job as well. There's a mystery to this. The reality is that, that God's ways are not our ways. I think it would be wrong for us to say that we fully understand how God works in our world and in our lives. That there is an opportunity for us to trust God. And to rest in the fact that he knows what he's doing. And the wicked are led here and there by the hidden power of God, as Calvin says. So we may struggle this afternoon with a how long. You think about your life, there's perhaps a how long in your heart. Maybe there's a why. Maybe this afternoon you have several how longs. Maybe you have several whys. And as you carry these questions in your heart, you may not have answers around why this is happening. You might not have an answer as to, to why something might have happened, why something is happening, and why something is not changing. I think it's okay for us to recognize these and for us to be honest before God about these. But I invite you this afternoon to respond in the way that, that God called Habakkuk to respond, that we would be a people who look, we would be a people who observe, and I think over time, through the Spirit of God, we would be a people who are astounded as we more carefully consider what God is doing in our lives and in this world. You know, it's one thing for me to, to say this from the front and to call you to, to live like this. It's quite another thing letting God do that in your life. So I recognize that this is, in many regards, quite a personal thing. You have to come before God and ask that in the power of his Holy Spirit, he would change our heart so that you have a desire to, to be as honest as you can possibly be before God and trust that he is going to reveal his deeper plan and purpose. The reality is, it's only a work of God that allows you to see what it is that he is doing in the midst of the suffering that you face. So, will you look as you think about your life? Will you look and see the, the broader perspective? Will you observe? Will you be astounded as you wholeheartedly meet with him through his word? 
through his spirit, through the church as well, through the council of the saints. I'm challenged by that in my own life. I can think of situations in my own life where I don't see any way forward. And I've been asking for a long time, God, why? God, how long? Do I trust? Do I trust in his sovereignty? Do I trust that he knows what he's doing? Am I willing to be that honest with God each and every day? And am I willing to recognize that, that God is using this to make me more Christ-like? There's a mystery, but there's also an opportunity to trust. Let me share a story which I believe um, encapsulates something of how it is God is at work in the midst of our suffering. Uh, and this is a story that, that became a, a lot clearer to this person as they looked back and as they saw what God had done. It's a story of, of Daniel Webster Whittle, who was a major in the Union Army during the American Civil War during the 1860s. And he later became a well-known preacher of the gospel. And he often related how he became a Christian during the bloody conflict between the states. He said that when the Civil War broke out, I left my home in New England and came to Virginia as a lieutenant of a company in a Massachusetts regiment. My dear mother was a devout Christian and parted from me with many a tear and followed me with many a prayer. She had placed a New Testament in a pocket of the haversack that she arranged for me. We had many engagements and I saw many sad sights. And in one of the battles, I was knocked out. And that night, my arm was amputated above the elbow. As I grew better, having a desire for something to read, I felt my haversack, which I had been allowed to keep, and found the little testament my mother had placed there. I read right through the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke to Revelation. Every part was interesting to me, and I found to my surprise that I could understand it in a way that I never had before. When I had finished Revelation, I began at Matthew and read it through again. And so for days I continued reading and with continued interest, and still with no thought of becoming a Christian, I saw clearly from what I read the way of salvation through Christ. And then a most amazing event happened in this prison hospital. Whittle continues with his description. He says this, While in a state of mind, <clears throat> yet still with no purpose or plan to repent and accept the Savior, I was awakened one midnight by the nurse who said, There is a boy in the other end of the ward, one of your men who is dying, he has been begging me for the past hour to pray for him or to get someone to pray for him. And I can't stand it. I am a wicked man and can't pray. And I have come to get you. Why, I said, I can't pray. I never prayed in my life. I am just as wicked as you are. Can't pray, said the nurse. Why, I thought, sure from seeing you read the testament that you were a praying man. And you are the only man in the world that I have not heard curse. What shall I do? There is no one else for me to go to. I can't go back there alone. Won't you get up and come and see him at any rate? And moved by this appeal, I arose from my cot and went with him to the far corner of the room. A fair-haired boy of 17 or 18 lay there dying. There was a look of intense agony upon his face as he fastened his eyes upon me and said, Oh, pray for me, pray for me. I am dying. I was a good boy at home in Maine. My mother and father are members of a church and I went to Sunday school and tried to be a good boy. But since I became a soldier, I have learned to be wicked. I drank and swore and gambled and went with bad men. 
and now I am dying and I am not fit to die. Oh, ask God to forgive me, pray for me, ask Christ to save me. Whittle got on his knees and prayed earnestly for the boy and the boy pressed his hand as he pleaded the promises. When he got up from his knees, the boy was dead. Yet Whittle believed he had his attention fixed on Christ when he died and that he had trusted in the Saviour. And right there, that very hour, Whittle himself got down on his knees and he came to save in faith in Jesus Christ. And over the years, uh, Whittle, the preacher, was overheard saying, I was the second person that I led to Christ. The first person was that boy. I was the second person. So how little we see what God is doing. How little we see his providence. Maybe that's some of us this afternoon. Maybe maybe we are struggling to see uh, what God is doing in our midst. You know, as, as we always do, we have tea and coffee after this time. But I would want us to recognise again, afresh, that this is a time to be prayed for. And perhaps you are going through something that you don't fully comprehend, you don't fully understand, but you want to, to rest more in his providence. You want to trust him in a much deeper way. And maybe this is a chance for you to be prayed for. So if that's you, then do speak with us. And we also recognize that today is the day of salvation. And for anyone who's watching online, this is an opportunity for you to put your faith and trust in him if you have yet done that. And as you do that, understand this is the most important decision you'll make. This is the most precious decision you'll make. And this is one that will completely turn your life around for the good. And perhaps for some of us, we're in a season where we just want more of God in our lives. Perhaps we need prayer uh, for healing. Uh, God would want to come to God would want to meet with us in a much deeper way. Uh, and he would want to be at work in the midst of what we face. Perhaps we have an illness or an ailment. Uh, perhaps we just find ourselves in the middle of a circumstance where we need God's, God's deeper grace. We would pray that God's healing touch would be upon you. We would ask that in the midst of what you're facing, God would use us so that you experience his grace and mercy in a much deeper way. So these are the ways that we can respond. Let's pray. Let's ask that God would use this time as we now come to worship and as we have tea and coffee, as we have fellowship, as we have opportunity to pray. So, Father, we, we ask that, that you, uh, by your spirit, would, would take this time. You would take your word and that you would work in and through that. Lord, as we have spent time thinking about the, the reality of suffering and sovereignty, Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us to, to trust you. Um, Lord, that we would be honest about the suffering we face, but we would also understand the promise of your sovereignty and the call that you have given to us to trust you in the midst of all that we face, knowing that you are working all things for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. So bless us now, Lord. Be with us and help us as we go into this week. We ask this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.